0: This programme was produced at and first aired on MPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand on air. Kapai Erarangi Timotu, MPR.
1: Kia ora and welcome to Reserved Recommendations. This is a show about great trash, difficult art, and our complicated relationships with art and culture. My name's Hugh, I'm the host of the show, and I'd like to take this opportunity to put in a very mild content warning for the show as a whole. Sometimes our recommendations on this show are reserved just because the thing that we're discussing is in some way not good, but sometimes there are aspects of the art or artist that may be confronting for some people. Check the episode descriptions for more information and do be aware of your listening environment. Today I am talking to Stuart Drake. How's it going, Stuart?
2: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
1: Good, good. Glad to have you back on the podcast. Um... And again, talking about something which just kind of like bypassed me as a cultural phenomenon, now I'm kind of i don't know feeling like maybe I missed a trick. um back when we did the episode about Sonic the Hedgehog, you said, "Have you back on if you ever wanted to, if I ever wanted to talk about blink one eight two and sure enough, there is a new blink one eighty two album and and you said that you have thoughts um so I guess like. What what was your initial connection with the band before we get to the thoughts about the new one? Uh I suppose
2: Um I actually I found Blink 182 as a teenager uh by way of Green Day. Um
1: Yeah. That seemed to me like the the axis that you would get into them through. Like not you like the the royal you, if you like, but Um, like they seemed to me like a band that had kind of benefited from the wake of Green Day, if you like.
2: Yeah, I definitely think, um, Green Day almost sort of soaked up a lot of the, um, accusations of being a sellout. And by the time Blink-182 showed up, that was just kind of inherent in what they were doing. (laughs) It was kind of like, well, they're Green Day, but they're a little bit prettier and they're a little bit more melodic. They've really got the hooks um they're willing to be a little bit more self-deprecating um
1: yeah i mean i remember there was that whole like um label of golf punk as like a a way of putting that style of pop punk down and then someone named a label golf punk
2: yeah that always happens i guess yeah you can't really use it as an insult anymore when they just wear it as a label
1: yeah yeah so i mean given that there there is green day and i think like, if you have the remotest interest in uh pop punk, then Green Day are kind of undeniable, um, particularly early Green Day. Um, like, what was the extra thing that, that got you interested in Blink 182?
2: Um, well, I think it's interesting that you say that you think it bypassed you because I think it all probably should have bypassed me because by the time I discovered it. Blink had just broken up for the first time. They've done that a couple of times. I'm sure we can get into that. Um, but for me, uh, I was in high school when American Idiot was released, which was kind of Green Day, when they re-entered the pop culture as kind of an act to kind of be taken seriously as a, a record seller. Um, and so I got quite into that album and kind of into that. Um, well, that was when my friends and I discovered, oh, you can play two strings at a time on the guitar in the same shape anywhere on the guitar and you can play or write anything
1: yeah that that discovery is magic right like yeah i remember um so for comparison i was uh i was at high school for dookie and i was like what i was learning when i was learning to play the guitar was uh, like nirvana songs because kurt had just died and they were just having like the post kurt death like extra bump that happened um and the thing about nirvana and i'm sure it's true of green day as well although i didn't learn as many of their songs is that the chord choices seem weird if you look at them as chord choices but if you look at them as hand positions on a guitar they make perfect sense because they're all like the classic grunge thing is like play the a shape chord and then the e shape chord like one fret like you change which chord thing and move by one fret and then you move a number of frets and repeat the pattern.
2: Yeah it's all it's all about how your hand moves rather than the music theory. (laughs) Yeah yeah yeah
1: and that means like the the you end up doing interesting music theory things as a result, but it's all about like guitar ergonomics.
2: Yeah. Well speaking of that, that is that was the transition point from American Idiot was sort of realizing oh, a lot of people on the internet are saying Green Day sucks. Uh, Blink-182 is where it's at. A lot of people are saying Blink-182 sucks.
1: Uh, right, yep.
2: And then picking up, listening to, realising I had heard, you know, all the small things, What's My Age Again, damn it, these sort of mm. radio hits, and then sort of going, oh, well, those have some fun little guitar bits in them. Green Day don't really do that. And then kind of playing those bits on the guitar after learning the Green Day and realising, oh, these are written with the playing in mind because he's singing and playing at the same time, um, which is a lot of the fun. Um, you find that, um, Tom DeLonge's guitar playing a lot of the time is covering up that there's only one guitar player. And then Mark Hoppus's bass playing is covering up that Tom DeLonge isn't a very good guitar player. So he's doing a lot of bass chords. Um, and then Travis Barker is kind of making up for the fact that neither of the other two are very good musicians. Um, (laughs)
1: yeah I mean like Travis Barker is fascinating right because he is kind of a mutant like he's just one of these uh, freakishly good musicians and so in some ways it's quite weird that the field that he chose to be such a ridiculously insanely precise and tight drummer in was like pop punk well
2: Something I've actually noticed since this new album has come out is a lot of reaction videos on YouTube from, like, metalheads and grunge people, and all of them comment on the drums and kind of go, Travis Barker, my boy, love that boy, Travis. So it is almost like he could have had a completely different path, but instead he has chosen to produce Machine Gun Kelly Records and being
1: like 82 you know he's made uh, uh, approximately 73 shit million dollars um <laughs> you know he's like he's done incredibly well for himself um playing in a in a pop punk band and and i who is anyone to hold that against anyone but i do find it fascinating the way that he, like his uh his joining the band kind of Hits it like a bus, you know.
2: It is, yeah. It's. I think it's sort of um, the the previous drummer was either fired or quit, depending on who you ask. Um, but I definitely do err on the side of them thinking.
1: I mean, they wrote a song, a bit which the subtext of is we fired you because you suck and you're a drunk. Sucks to be yeah, you. Um, exactly. So you know.
2: <laughs> I think people who people who like to pretend that they never did that uh pretend that he quit you know that's <laughs> um but i do think it was almost a conscious choice of um this guy's got something he whether it whether it is um just the x factor you know we kind of need this guy in the band um there's the famous story that he learned their set in half an hour you know and it's an hour long set so you sort of <laughs>
1: um, i mean you know you can i i think like one really sharp tight musician can give the rest of the band license to be loose in some ways like i don't think to go to give a classic rock example i don't think keith richards would work as well in the rolling stones if he hadn't have had charlie watts to just be kind of metronomic so that keith has something to flop around off of if you see what i mean
2: yeah, well, you're totally right. And Travis Varga has like explicitly said that in an interview. He has said, you know, I see my role as you know, I showed up and I started arranging the songs. And I started kind of saying, this is how many beats we're going to have in the break in the middle while you guys can talk. And then we're going to play the rest of the song. You know, he was kind of like um, in that role kind of going like, yeah, I'll I'll keep time so you guys can take off your guitar and roll around if you want, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, and this is how much time you have to do that.
2: Yes, yeah, exactly. This is along the setters, and this is how many songs we have to play. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a guy, um, he's a blues player, mostly based in Dunedin. He's called King Leo. He's an American guy who played with a lot of blues guys when he was a teenager and then came over here and I think worked as a psychiatrist as well as being a blues musician. And he said to me at one point, Hugh, the thing you have to understand is every band needs at least, no, it needs one but only one fascist. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Someone's got to keep you, keep you following the rules.
1: Mm, yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, uh, you can't have two of them or you'll end up with like a late period pink Floyd situation, but you know.
2: Yeah. Interestingly, I do think that's, um, that's a bit of what broke up the band. Uh, I think the, a couple of the times is that I do think that, so there's the three of them, Travis, Mark and Tom. Mm. And I do think, um, Tom is the wild card. Uh, that kind of periodically has to get kicked out or quit the band. Um, and I do think he felt like he was being held to account by two fascists, if you will, <laughs> in, this, uh, in this case. Uh, and then it is, it's up for debate whether he uh, was being a bit of a loose cannon uh, and whether he really knew that aliens were out there and is now validated, or whether, um, you know, whether there's more to it than that. <laughs>
1: so... Um, just to return to the to the music, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You made the point that like, um, the band is kind of like in some ways it's it's Travis Barker making space for these two other guys who are not really that good musicians, and I think like one of my kind of pet rants that I have is the idea that people get very particularly men of a particular age get very hung up on the idea of like a good performance or a good skill set or a good like guitar tone or something like that. And I think it's much more important to have like the right guitar tone or the right performance for the moment. And I I think like listening to Blink-182, you were talking about how like The parts kind of fill for what might otherwise be deficiencies, but they do that really effectively. Like that little um, guitar lead thing that leads into, damn it, lives in my head forever. And it's the simplest little, really stupid little lead, but it's just... It's the perfect thing and it is now buried into my brain and I will never get it out. And it's been that way since I heard that song on the radio in 1990, whenever it came out.
2: Yeah. Well, um, Tom DeLonge describes it as nursery rhymes. He says we we were basically writing nursery rhymes. There were three notes a lot of the time and it was kind of just going up and down those three notes because we didn't know any better. And then we'd send the song out and then kind of, you know, the the critics would point that out and we'd go, oh, I guess. (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah. But, I, yeah, I do think that's a very good point. And sort of Blink are a good example of kind of the, the antithesis of that thinking where um, – um, so the way I would describe it is uh, I, I don't necessarily think Tom and Mark are good musicians, but I like their taste. And then I do think Travis Barker is a good musician, but I am not necessarily a fan of his taste. And then there's an interesting push and pull between those things.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, like, that's a really fascinating point, right? Because um, there is a guy who should remain nameless because he doesn't deserve any harm to come to him. He's a perfectly harmless guy. But I went to school with him and he was one of these frustrating people who could pick up anything, absolutely anything. And if you give him half an hour, he can give you a tune on it. And if you give him a couple of hours, he could give you a really good tune on it. But the peak of music for him was Lady in Red by Chris Berg. Like that was nothing, nothing was better. And so that was, that was his entire taste. And it was just, it was so weird to have that incredible level of competence and an incredible level of talent, but just such strange, bad taste.
2: Yeah. And then I think with with Blank too. there's also this sort of fascinating thing where they've dedicated themselves to being quite good at kind of a thing that is a bit silly and pointless. Like, you know, Tom DeLong is famous for being very good at playing riffs while downstroking only with his guitar pick. And he, you watch videos of him from, you know, 1994, 1995, and it is really impressive guitar playing. And he is playing a riff that would be much easier to play if he was stroking up and down Mm. but at the end of the day you think why not play doing up and down strokes I don't know why you have done this
1: (laughs) yeah because like Um, (laughs) you know the if you think about a band like the Ramones they became very like no this is a hit formula we do this this way and we we are really explicit about we only do it this way and if because they had to change members in because people kept dying of drug overdoses but like they would bring them in and coach them and you know this is how you stand you only play this way but blink 182 like it doesn't have that kind of membership turnover and it doesn't really have that kind of explicit philosophy it's just he's really committed to that being the style
2: yeah yeah and then you know travis barker is a very very technically impressive drummer um, mm. but a lot of the time uh his drumming has been described as sounding like loading a dishwasher because he just kind of plays every drum as much as he can play every drum. Um, And that isn't necessarily (laughs) the best practice, but it does appeal to, you know, like the aforementioned like metalheads who kind of really respect that technicality and kind of who tune recordings to kind of be to every beat, um, which is something Travis now does with his productions. Um, Yeah, so there is an odd crossover there.
1: Um. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. The other thing that I was really quite surprised by is my mental image of Blink-182 was like quite scatological and like stupid on purpose. But what I did to, to prepare for this conversation was basically went to Spotify and put on the This Is Blink White 8-2 playlist on random. So I got like whatever album tracks from whatever albums served to me in whatever order. And overwhelmingly, it's quite vulnerable. Like a lot of it's songs about feeling like insecure and like people aren't taking you seriously. And I mean, it's definitely really teenage stuff, but it's a lot more of the kind of sad teenage mindset that I would have been into if I'd been the right age for them than I had kind of assumed.
2: Yeah. So interestingly, like one of my favorite things to say is that um, Dude Ranch by Blink-182 is an emo album. Um, And that's because it, to me is it, it's one of the only albums they've recorded that is truly, truly honest where they did not consider, you know, the early ones obviously are honest, but they're kind of, um, they're a bit, Shit. They're a bit jank. Yeah, they're yeah. they're not very good.
1: Like, Dude, I, just- <laughs> I, I had a listen to the some of the tracks of Cheshire Cat, which I think is the debut studio album. Yeah. And like the production is not good. The yes, drummer the- that Travis Barker replaced is fine. Um, yeah. you know, like it- it's just it's quite average pop punk at that point. Yeah.
2: So he's in. He's, he plays in Dude Ranch as well, and I think that's where they kind of began to find their flavour. Um, but you listen; they're, they're in their early 20s, and you listen to the lyrics, and Mark Hoppus is singing about a guy called Mark Eaton that used to get elbow dropped and singing. In his early 20s, during their first studio album, he's singing about how embarrassing it is to still be playing in a pop-punk band and how pretty soon he's going to have to stop doing that. So you can imagine when they blow up and he has to record three more albums he's kind of, he's, he's going, what do I write about? What do I write about? Um, (laughs) uh, and that's where I think the teenage aspect comes in where it sort of becomes, it becomes a machine that he has to feed where he has to write about the sadness he doesn't necessarily have anymore. And so it becomes, um, well, I'm the king of the weekend, but my girlfriend dumped me. And it's coming from a married 45 year old man. Um,
1: yeah, and that's that's quite a weird position to be in, right? Cuz you know, uh the the bands that I liked in my high school years either like stopped making music or evolved and started making very different music. Like those one of those two things happened, but Blink-182 like the production keeps improving. Uh, And the newest album is definitely like a 2023 pop punk album sonically, but it's still like the same template quite a lot.
2: Well, it's interesting that you say those two things um, change sonically and break up because they actually did both of those things. (laughs) Yep. And there is a cutoff point. I've always, uh, you know, these are all talks I've had at the pub with my friends where, you know, there is a cutoff point in Blink-182's history where, they are 100% defensible as a great. I believe that. I truly believe that. And then there's a point where they came back and they kept going and there's, you know, there's a wobbly period. We're kind of, we've settled now, you know, hmm. I think it's okay. <laughs> I think we're, we've settled. Um, but there is, you know, once they bro- broke up and I think it was 2005. And if you if you cut it off there and they never get back together, they split off into two different bands. They snipe at each other. It's never quite the same, but Blink-182 has a legacy. Um, you know, they moved from Dude Ranch to very polished pop punk to almost a post-punk emo and then immediately broke up. It's almost poetic.
1: <laughs> and, and, you know, plenty of bands have that trajectory of, like, they do – two or three seminal albums and then they split up and everyone does their own solo projects or becomes a producer or leaves music or whatever. And you have that kind of glorious period. And there are some bands where the trajectory is like, you know, uh, first album while they find their feet seminal two to three albums then a kind of shit one and then they break up but like you know plenty of bands do that it's it's you're right it's it's odd that they kind of come in and out of that like the, the, the peaks and valleys
2: yeah and then on top of that there's the re- the first reunion with Tom DeLonge which they then broke up again from then they brought in Matt Skiba for a good I want to say almost eight years maybe oh no that's two maybe six years mm. uh and then they essentially unceremoniously threw him to the curb and brought Tom DeLong back when he was ready. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, kind of a a storied history there. Um, and not one, again, like, if you are listening to the This Is Blink-182 uh, playlist, it is one of those things where, as somebody who likes them a lot but has a very curated playlist of what I consider good, you kind of put your head in your hands and you go, oh, no, I hope you didn't hear that one. <laughs> and uh, Oh, I hope you didn't hear that one. You know, I, I hope you didn't hear Matt Skieber of Alkaline Trio calling himself the king of the weekend. You know, I just...
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the way that the, reserva- the 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 recommendation is reserved, right, is that the the thing that they're doing is in some ways quite repetitive, so you can hear a lot of music that sounds quite similar, but also, like, there are some real peaks and some real troughs. Um,
2: yeah, and I would say that golden period they have, it's arguable whether it's three or four albums. I would say it's it's three with kind of a, you skip one in the middle, but that's a controversial. We'll say it's four. Mm. Um, and then there's kind of a period where if you really, really like it, you know, you can listen to the rest. <laughs> um, uh, and then luckily, we, you know, we've landed in a place now where I don't, I don't think there's anything terribly offensive in what they're doing now.
1: Um, yeah i mean that's that is what prompted this conversation and so it it comes now to ask like what do you reckon about the new blink 182 album i listening to it found it interesting the way that it seemed like they were finally trying to uh they would it it was a dual thing again right they they seemed like they were finally writing their age uh in terms of lyrical content and and themes and things, but sonically they were still doing more or less the same thing as ever
2: yeah um i I think that's that's a very fair assessment um and i i i think I, I think it's as good a Blink-182 album as you could sensibly expect in 2023, <laughs> is what I think. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, I, I think the elephant in the room is that um, Mark Hoppus, the bass player, had cancer. And I did do think that for a long time, I personally thought that, you know, that would just be the end of it and he, he was done for um, and they would never get back together and that was that. Um, and so it's just kind of best-case scenario that, oh, um, parasocially, it is sort of like, oh, these people are best friends again. Um and then on top of that, um I, I do get the sense that they're quite aware that they have a storied history. Um, you know, before the album came out, they released a one hour Zane Lowe interview where he asks them about every album chronologically, you know, and they go through the history and talk about the breakup. So they're they're very aware. Um and the album is almost about that.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say they, they address that quite explicitly. It's it's the song One More Time, right? They they talk about like this is all the shit that we did and some of it was to each other and some of it wasn't great. Um, yeah.
2: Um, the opening track, Anthem Part 3, which is even named after previous tracks in uh, their discography, explicitly has Tom DeLong sing uh, My Old Shit Ends Here Tonight. Um, and it is about, it is a classic, uh, you know, they have two vocalists, Tom and Mark, and they classically trade vocals a lot of the time um, during their, their peak what we loved. Um, uh, And they they trade vocals classically, and it is essentially Tom singing lyrics about, it's great that we're back in the band, and Mark singing lyrics about having cancer, which um, as far as wanting them to just kind of write about something honestly, it's about the best you could hope for. These are things that are happening to them, and they're writing about them um, in a way that...
1: And, I mean, like, being in this band has cost them, including... um, Travis Barker like the the person who kind of seems like the least human musician of them like he basically blew up his leg drumming for them um if i remember the wikipedia article i read correctly
2: yeah well and he's also had um he was in a a plane crash uh with a dj friend of his who they they both survived but he was badly burned he didn't fly for i think over a decade um his dj friend in the fallout of that died of a uh, drug overdose um blink 182 reformed in the wake of that the first time um and recorded an underwhelming album and then broke up again <laughs> um so then they were sort of hit by more tragedy when obviously mark Hoppus was diagnosed with cancer etc so yeah and then um Travis has again and again injured himself working for them. Um, every, I mean, I think he is quite reckless in what he does. He's um, constantly posting Instagram posts of a bloodied hand and kind of a, a splint on his finger which he's drumming with, you know. So, um, but yeah, there is a. It has cost them, if you will. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, I'm talking to Stuart Drake about the band Blink 182 and uh, in particular just now their uh, most recent album, which is called One More Time. Uh, It is time
0: for us now to take a brief break and we will be back right after this. If you're enjoying this podcast in Two, you could make your very own just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app.
1: And we're back. You're listening to Reserved Recommendations. This is a radio show and podcast from Two People's Radio, made with the support of New Zealand On Air, so cheers for that, guys. Uh, today I'm talking to Stuart Drake about the band Blink-182. We were just talking about the uh the new album uh the the so i featured a track i do a like featured tracks podcast for this radio station as well and uh the track that i featured from blink 182 was uh terrified which it was just like it was the one that felt like it was embodying the thing that i really like when they do which I suppose is like the more vulnerable thing where they take a break from downstrokes and do a little bit of finger-picky stuff before it gets loud. If you wanted to reduce it to its most basic kind of bits, I guess.
2: Yeah, which I love to do. As somebody who is constantly sort of trying to emulate the things that I love, it is fun to just break it down into the building blocks. And I think they've done that themselves. Um, I do think that's how they've approached it, which is quite sort of fascinating to watch. Um, Yeah, so that, that song is led by Tom DeLonge, who is the wild card of the band and is probably the most inconsistent. He does the things I love the most and also the things I absolutely cannot stand. Um, and if you talk about um, how Blink 22 have been doing the same thing for decades, I do think that comes primarily from Mark Hoppus, who is, I would call like the consistent one, mm-hmm. you know, him and he's the bass player, him and Travis hold down the fort. Um, you know, they kept it going while Tom DeLonge went off somewhere else you know and he kind of he's the one that's responsible for the the track sort of like other side and bad news on the album if you remember them if you've heard the album all the way through that are just kind of your classic you listen to it and you just go well that's just rock and roll Mm. and you uh, kind of a couple of days later you are going (laughs) you know and he he wrote the riff to damn it he's responsible for (laughs) so he he brings
1: that, which you have and, now just like replayed in the ears of every <laughs> listener who has ever heard. Damn it! They have all got that now. It's there's no escaping it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's, well, Tom DeLonge is welcome for those royalties. Yeah, that's like
1: <laughs> that's like it's just such a a fundamentally perfect earworm. Um, yeah. No, it's it's interesting. Again, I think how. Uh, how vulnerable that they're able to be within that structure, which seems quite, um, I don't know, for want of a better word, kind of macho.
2: Yeah, well, I think it is It is sort of something that has to be addressed, is that there is kind of a vibe in the early days that it was kind of a very much, um, like we're running around naked in our video. Um, but I do think in their eyes – they were attempting to skewer a little bit and it was a, it was misinterpreted for the most part, I think, because I think the idea for them was we'll run around naked because look, it's us. This is silly. Um, and then I think the way it was taken by the mainstream was we're running around naked. Cause look at these three hot guys. Um,
1: and and it was <laughs> like, and this is not really their fault because this is the rest of the culture doing stuff in parallel, but it's sort of intersected with things like the rise of jackass Like, you know, it, it seemed, if you didn't look at it in detail, it seemed like it was kind of adjacent to that, like bros being dudes running around, hitting each other with shit kind of movement that was going on.
2: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that, um, I do think, you know, that vulnerability within that context that has kind of um, influenced a lot of sort of, um, more modern emo bands, sort of contemporary stuff like modern baseball and bands like that. A lot of them, um, they, one of their primary influences they credit is Blink182. And then you listen to their lyrics, and it's basically, God, I'm so sad and I can't stop drinking. You know, um, so there is a through line there. Um, and I, I guess that was maybe something that was appealing to me as opposed to Green Day. I didn't necessarily get that from Green Day, where I did get that from, you know, Tom DeLong. He was willing to say, man, it sucks when people are mean to you in class. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and like I think you could draw a line from Blink-182 to like The Killers or something like that as well. Um, you, you could probably make a convincing argument that if you waved a magic wand and erased Blink-182, you would not end up with Mr. Brightside.
2: Well, I think that's the thing is I do something I love about Blink and something that is important to me is that intersection of the silly and the serious like and Blink are one of those bands that, you know, they chose to do something that is quite silly, really, but they've done it very well. And, you know, they had this producer who I'd love to talk about or Jerry Finn, who took it very seriously um, is the same way that, you know, you have very good technical artist working on a Sonic the Hedgehog movie, something like that. Um, And I do kind of think, to me, there isn't a lot of – you know, nobody will like this – but there isn't a lot of difference between a band like Blink-182 and a band like the Smashing Pumpkins. They are the same thing to me. I love both bands equally, and I don't think one is more artistically serious than the other. But I do think one has chosen to be a little sillier, (laughs) if you will.
1: Yeah, no, I I get that. I get that. And, and, you know – Like, uh, someone was making a joke on social media the other day about uh, flashing back to the 90s, and my contribution to that joke was, oh, holy shit, I remember people liking Billy Corgan, Um, which I don't think, like, anyone from Blink-182 has seriously uh, blackened their copybook in in quite that way. Um, Not quite. No, no, like... You have to be a particular kind of serious to start doing the weird shit that Billy Corgan did. Um, Do you want to talk about that producer then? Because like you mentioned him and he comes up in articles and things, but he's not someone who I'm so familiar with. So I'm really interested in your take on his contribution.
2: Yeah. So um, uh, his name is Jerry Finn. He unfortunately has passed the late, great Jerry Finn. Um, He was a record producer who did primarily work in pop punk which I thought was really interesting because he is talking about that intersection he's primarily you know one of those real gearhead performance guys you know he would have fit in well with a real metal band that you know any any kind of genre he would mm. fit in with any band that really wanted to take it seriously but he was in the room with Tom DeLonge um, saying no it's don't waste your time on me you're all you know sitting there going you're going to get it right and you're going to do it again and he's going we're not going to use auto-tune um you're going to perform it correctly and we're going to spend three days working on your guitar tone <laughs> um, for this riff that has three notes in it um <laughs> which i i kind of love and is kind of how i would love to approach things myself you know i i think the things i do I, I just kind of I'm not technically trained in a lot. I like to kind of think of paint at things, but I like to take it very seriously. Um
1: Yeah, I mean but from a from an audio engineer's perspective, what you're doing when you do that is that you're you're like creating zones that things can live in, right? So I mean getting the getting getting uh your your vocalist to nail the notes is just like Please sing the song properly. But when you're thinking about, like, maybe you are only playing three notes, but we're going to really nail this guitar tone, what you're talking about is, like, well, let's make it play nicely with the bass tone that we have and the drum sound that Travis is getting. Because, like, as you mentioned, Travis, you know, has a reputation for hitting everything all at once and, you know, being a kind of busy, complicated drummer for these very simple songs. So you need to make space for that, right? If you just let the guitars be a big wall across the whole frequency spectrum, you're not going to be able to hear anything. Um, The bass is going to fight with it. You won't be able to hear the drums. So it it does make sense that you would really want to, because everything's so simple, you would really want to dial everything in and make it sit in relation to everything else.
0: Yeah,
2: well, interestingly, I do think one of the problems with mink 82 now is that they don't have him to tell Travis not to play so busily i do think he spent a lot of time convincing them where their strengths uh, were and how they should use them um and i would i do think um anybody who wants to sort of tell what jerry finn is about is i would say listen to dude ranch any track from that and then listen to any track from say enema of the state or blink 182's untitled album from 2003 and it is night and day the latter two were jerry finn and I would challenge anybody to listen to those albums and sonically find anything to complain about. You can say what you will about their taste, their songwriting. Mm. You know, I'll I'll be the first to take that arrow straight to the heart. Uh, but that production, it really is immaculate. Um, yeah, you, it, it honestly is uh, quite impressive. Uh, and then he, yeah, he he really did um, elevate them. I think.
1: And that's kind of an error thing right like just just this is a thought that has occurred to me in the moment, but like if you think about you know the Ramones or the Sex Pistols or the Clash, or you know like earlier non pop punk punk bands, they're dealing with the sonic limitations of the equipment that they're working with to a fair degree like. There are certain shit that you just can't really do with tape, and it'll respond in particular ways, and you're just stuck with what it does. But Blink One Eighty Two would be largely recording digitally, I would assume, with like they would be starting at the dawn of pro tools, and so suddenly you have all of this like amazing dynamic range and glorious crystal clarity, and that means you can hear if people are like making really sub optimal choices in a way that you kind of couldn't before
2: yeah yeah so i think enema of the state was their last album recorded to tape um and it does genuinely it sounds Mm. incredible it really is a very good sounding album he knew what he was doing jerry (laughs) and then i think from then on they moved to to digital and yeah the following albums do sound incredible um yeah their first album post jerry finn's death is called neighborhoods and as much as you know as a blink One Eighty Two fan you grow to love it and appreciate it it sounds like garage band demos is what it, it sounds like they've sent their tracks to each other and said, well, next thing we'll get together with Jerry and he'll fix it. Um, but sadly, he wasn't around <laughs> anymore. Um.
1: Yeah, that's like, that is a, a an increasing feature of the way that music is made now, right? Is that people kind of come up with their parts in isolation. I suppose there was always an element of that, like people would uh, come into the studio in different, Uh, shifts maybe but it it does feel like a different thing somehow when you're like capable of mailing tracks to people to put their contribution on and mail back to you
2: yes yeah i you know i'm sure it does affect how it is recorded um i know that the new album was also recorded similarly, but they've they've done a lot of um, PR where they've talked about how they were meeting up every two weeks to kind of go over ideas and rehearse the songs together. They really wanted to hammer home that this was um, best friends being best friends because I think that parasocial element is quite important to selling <laughs> records. Um, but they this time around they had um, Travis who produced the album, um, which, um, as I said, you know, I have a lot of respect for him, don't necessarily like his taste. So I do think it's a case of... Um, the person whose taste I like the least being the final say in the packaging of the songs,
1: yeah, I did notice, and I you know with uh modern pop production, it's often difficult to hear to tell exactly what you're hearing because there there are a few things that can cause something that would make you kind of just like flicker slightly too much production switch in your in your brain, but I was certainly noticing with the uh, With the vocals in particular on this new album, they were sounding like extra crushed and precise in a way that's very modern pop and which I don't necessarily enjoy a lot.
2: So I think that's a trend with pop punk and specifically with Travis Barker. There are a few uh, Travis Barker signifiers on the album, which would be the all caps presentation on every streaming service. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a Travis Barker thing. Uh, every song being absolutely brick walled to oblivion. I yeah, cannot it overstate. is
1: a loud fucking album. Uh, it really is like you will hear it um, when it pops out your streaming service or off the radio at you.
2: Um, there are claims online that the album has been replaced on streaming services with a new mix several times uh, due to complaints. So we'll see. I don't know if that is true or not. The claims are that the drums were quietened after complaints. Um, But I will say, uh, I do say that I like the album. I think it's, like I say, I think it's the best we could hope for. Uh, I think it's good. I have a playlist. So the album is overall, including the two songs they rushed into release, uh, as the album was coming out on streaming, there are nineteen songs, which is a lot
1: yeah that's um, that 's really long
2: yeah, so I have a playlist which is twelve songs long, which I think is great um, i 've also rearranged a couple of the songs, and I keep saying the new blink one eighty two album is great, and what I mean is my playlist is great <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do just think it is a quality control and a taste thing, um, which you know i 'm not going to I'm not going to complain and say, you know, do oh, Travis Barker. Cause I do think it is sensibly. This is the best we could have hoped for. Uh, they gave me 19 songs and I have the option of saying, well, I want to listen to that one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. And, and more than ever, right. Like, uh, releases to a certain extent mirror the way that the media in which they're released kind of operate. Um, are you familiar with Aphex twin?
2: Uh, not hugely. No. Okay.
1: Um, Not important. The point is that he released an album back in 2000 and Not Much, which was called Drux. And the thing about Drux as an album is it's kind of an uneven listen. The the tracks aren't bad. There aren't, if you like, his kind of thing. But it just doesn't really seem particularly coherent as a way to put an album together. And he said in an interview later, oh yeah, that's because I released it in the age of the um, standalone MP3 player. And so the way that I envisioned that album was literally like a bag of tunes that you would grab out and then put into your music device, which can hold a fairly limited number. So you'll pick your like three or four favorites and rotate through them as you want them. I wasn't really envisioning it as something that someone would like put on their record player and listen to from start to finish. Um, and this album has released into the environment of, okay, well, these these tracks aren't to you, uh, aren't to your taste, and you don't think our order is quite right, build your own playlist.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. I, and I do think that's interesting that um, thinking about that from the outset – um, I don't necessarily think Blink-182 have put that much thought into it. I do think perhaps <laughs> they think they have mm. put together a very cohesive Blink-182 experience. But they are the kind of band where um, they've existed for so long. And, you know, Tom DeLonge kind of has very eclectic taste. Um, you know, they were a almost a skate punk band for a while with kind of those fast skate punk beats from Scott Raynor, And then they kind of moved into very pop kind of in the 90s, and now into this kind of modern thing. They did post-punk for a while. And there are these camps of people who say they should sound like this. They should sound like this. Other people say if they sound like this, I'll never listen to them again. They should sound like this. Um, And so I think they do almost have this obligation to just kind of check off a bunch of boxes. You know, I think my playlist does not have the two 30-second joke songs in it because I don't really need Tom DeLonge going, you know, like, oh, Poopy poopy or whatever for 30 seconds. I don't need that. One of their ones with Matt Skiba had a song about seeing some naked dudes, you know, and I'm kind of like, well, oh, funny, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I don't need to listen to it. That's okay. I can I hear a song now? Um, so I just kind of take those out. Um, but I understand that if they don't have a joke song in there, some guy on the internet is going to give it one star on Amazon and it's going to affect their sales. So yeah.
1: And, and I mean, it is kind of like, you know, they, they have always been a band who play to the crowd, right? They're not, they're not a radio head who are going to go, okay, we, we are considered to be uh, the seminal rock band of this particular era in Britain, but actually we're going to make like an hour and a half of weird bleeping and blooping noises and, and, and whining about pyramids in space. Um, they're, they're not ever quite going to go that left turn on you.
2: Well interestingly, uh, apparently, I, this is this is conjecture now, this is online discourse, but uh, uh, a claim is that one of the reasons Tom DeLong left after the first reunion is that he did not want to play all the small things in first date anymore because he just hated them. He did not want to play a song called First Date as a 45-year-old man. Ben. And he was he was basically told, We play the hits or you walk <laughs> I think is and that's very much their attitude, and I think as older men uh I think he has softened on that and he's kind of said, well, I guess we play the hits, you know. Um, and I, I do kind of find it fascinating that they are the kind of band where they kind of ride that line where um, I'm very aware that this is a one of the biggest bands in the world and they are a pop band, you know, and they, they are very commercial. Um, but you'll see posts online about um, someone will say, I was in the mall and I heard the rock show. I can't believe it. Like, I'm so happy. I heard my favourite band on the radio. And you kind of go, well, it's not your local band who's released the cassette it's blink 182 you know they've got what like 91 million yes listeners on spotify you know like they were at several times the biggest band in america
1: <laughs> yeah no they they like they are the the template for a pop punk band being like the best commercial proposition for a while
2: and I do think that also applies to something like, you know, Nirvana or Foo Fighters. I do think there's an element where sort of a certain demographic of people hear that on the radio and go, wow, wow, that's on the radio. And you kind of have to go, well, yeah, it's a radio hit. <laughs>
1: yeah, And, and <laughs> I mean, I think, like, because Nirvana were kind of caught by surprise by their fame to some degree... I think and and Kurt was so kind of adversarial with the idea of fame. I think that people do forget that like these were also bands where they may be making this like sludgy, heavy guitar distortion music, but they're also listening to like the Beatles and the Bay City rollers and the Beach Boys and thinking about like the the craft of constructing pop songs from from pieces to make them like lock together and work as pop songs
2: yeah well and in, in the inverse i do think that uh, a lot of the the influences that tom DeLong and mark coppers would cite would make gatekeepers just absolutely horrified because it would be all of their favorite bands you know tom DeLong won't stop talking about the descendants and i think anybody who really loves the descendants would kind of be going well where where has that gone you know, how, how does that produce Blink-182? I don't understand. Um, whereas to me, it makes perfect sense. I think, well, yeah, there it is. Um, I grew up on the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater soundtrack. That makes sense.
1: Oh, man, look, there is there are there are theses to be written about the impact of the Tony Hawk Pro Skater soundtrack on, <laughs> on people's psyche. Like um, that song, Beat Your Heart Out by um, the Distillers, just... It, 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 I was trying to nail a tricky jump in Tony Hawk Underground 2 and mm-hmm. it came on and it just stuck in my brain forever. You know, like there was stuff that you wouldn't go and look for that it just, it just served up because it was the thing at the moment.
2: Yeah, I do think I can credit that for sort of my ability to not cringe when I hear sort of something terribly pop punk or terribly almost 90s ska punk is just having been exposed to it in such large doses. You know, I hear a real big fish song and it doesn't immediately make me curl up.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I think there is value to that idea of like kill the part of you that cringes. Um, And I think one thing that we've kept coming back to is that like one of the appeals of of blink 182 is that they brazenly and with a lot of confidence do something that's fundamentally quite embarrassing like these little nursery rhyme melodies with three chords based around guitaric and ergonomics and we're just going to do it like loud and with confidence
2: yeah and then um like like we've said for a moment there you know there's a, a, sh- a photo i love sharing around which is mark hoppus on a red carpet event for mtv with his hand around beyonce's hips you know there was a time where what they were doing and what beyonce was doing were on equal footing and the world just kind of watched this happen we all let it happen
1: (laughs) yeah no one no one prevented blink 182 so it is everybody's fault um well look thank you very much for talking stuart we are coming up on time um there are two things I like to do by way of wrapping things up. One is to ask for, like, specific recommendations. So are there, like, Blink-182 uh, adjacent bands or projects, or are there, like, specific uh, curated bits of their discography that you would point people at?
2: Uh, with Blink-182, I'd um, I'd recommend Dude Ranch the album, calling it an email album, with the caveat that it does have a couple of... Uh, quote-unquote skits on it they do a cut as
1: was the fashion at the time yes
2: yeah if you can get past that um it's worth it for sort of the the, one of the only albums where they've really really gutted themselves emotionally um after that they had a run of very solid work which i'll just say just do it The, the production is great if you want to listen to enema of the state or the untitled album both fantastic that's 99 and 2003 and then If you're into that, the new one is a fun little reunion. It's, you know, it's what we could hope for.
1: Yeah, I I think that that, um, that new one is, like you say, it's the best case scenario for a band with this kind of pedigree and these kinds of personalities coming together, trying to reckon with being old guys all of a sudden
2: yeah and as as a fan you know one of them well, two of them nearly died, and one of them went off to work with NASA to find aliens so the idea of them coming together and recording an album that to- is listenable. It's just, that's fantastic. What could I, what else can I hope for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would recommend, uh, if you never did play any of the like PlayStation two era, Tony Hawk underground or Tony Hawk pro skater games, if you can find a playlist of those soundtracks, you will find that there is stuff that you would never listen to by choice that you will find yourself deeply compelled by. That was definitely the case for me. Like, there was stuff that I would never have sought out that suddenly was just always in my head and I had to hear again.
2: Um, Yeah, those... uh, I know I can say for certain Spotify has a lot of Tony Hawk uh, and Tony Hawk adjacent playlists. You'll find either playlists made up of the actual songs from the games or, you know, people with good taste who have just continued to curate. um,
1: Yeah, and I think, like, with that, like late 90s early '00s pop punk curation is really the name of the game because yeah. uh green day opened a door blink 182 came through it and made just the most money and then there were like 500 million bands who all wanted to do that thing and many of them recorded one good song
2: i yeah i would comfortably say that they opened the door too wide um, perhaps that door should have been closed quite soon after that. Um, curation is the name of the game. And I, I will say in terms of an anti-recommendation, d- do not listen to the This Is Blink-182 podcast. Uh, sorry, playlist. Right, You okay. will, you will uh, it, it, it hasn't been curated by the right people.
1: Um <laughs> it was possibly curated by Travis Barker um it's given true. the <laughs> amount of suction that he has with the with the recording industry at the moment. All right. Well, thank you very much again for talking. Do you have things that you want to plug? I will as always plug your band The Fatalities. People should go and listen to it. It's very good. Um every time I have a USB drive that I listen to in lieu of the radio in my car and every time Crybaby comes on all of my kids sing along with it so you have that uh, as a recommendation
2: oh thank you very much that's very kind yeah i was um going to say in terms of a plug uh it would be the fatalities band camp uh if for no reason other than uh during lockdown and just after lockdown in auckland i recorded a couple of blink 182 covers oh nice so there are, uh, I think, I believe they're free to download, and if not free to download, at least free to stream. I've got some covers of the songs uh, "Pathetic" and "I'm Sorry," which are from Dude Ranch. Uh, you will see the emo comparison when you listen; you'll mm-hmm. understand what I mean. Uh, and then there's also the track uh, "Man Overboard," which is the aforementioned song about kicking Scott Raynor out of the band.
1: So. Oh, yeah. Actually, I have one final uh, recommendation, which is a kind of sideways one. There is a project you can find called Alameno Papayoya, which is a local musician here in Pami was gifted uh, a banjo. And in the course of trying to learn to play the banjo, the things that they decided to play to teach themselves how to play it were the hits of uh, our very own early aughts pop punk phenomenon, Alameno P., So if you would like some like deliberately really sloppy, really cruisy, just like sitting around a living room, chilling, playing acoustic instruments, LMNOP covers, that album is there and I think they're still donating proceeds to Women's Refuge, which is, you know, also good.
2: Um, I could talk for hours about LMNOP, Goodnight Nurse and New Zealand Pop Punk, so I definitely have to check that out.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's well worth checking out and maybe that's another show we could do because like... That wave of, I guess you'd call it like quota rock, you know, like there was the point where you had to play a certain amount of New Zealand music and so suddenly there were just a million bands all trying to be the next big thing at once. Um, That is a really interesting bit of New Zealand music history that I don't know if anyone's talked about.
2: Um, Um, As a a cis white guy who plays the guitar, I do feel like I've been absolutely uh, messed over by history. I just missed that by a few years.
1: Born in the wrong era for that one, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well,
2: thanks once again, Stuart. Oh, thank you very much for having me.
1: You've been listening to Reserved Recommendations, a radio show and podcast from Manawatu People's Radio, today Reo Irrangi on Manawatu. The show was produced and presented by me, Hugh Dingwall, and I also composed our theme music. It's called Sack Jazz, and you can find it at wolfboy.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed this show, why not go ahead and share it with a friend? You can find the last 10 episodes at npr.nz show slash or wherever else you get your podcasts if you want an episode older than that try searching for reserved recommendations on youtube you can find me on Twitter at objective realty, or you can follow the show on Facebook. And finally, Manwa Two Peoples Radio is a non-profit community access station. If you like this or any other piece of their fine audio programming, why not fling them a dollar or two? You can go to npr.nz/donate for more information on how to do that.